This message by Mike Pluniak was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Mike serves as a pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Well, good morning, and go ahead and uh, open your Bibles to James chapter 4. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand and an usher will bring you a free Bible so that you can follow along with us as we study God's Word this morning. We're in a series, James, looking at James chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. And this is what God's Word says to us today. Come now. You who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little, little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. May we store up God's word in our hearts today that we might not sin against him. How does God instruct us to think about our plans? I was recently flipping through my kids' yearbook and noticed something new that they were doing. When I was in high school, you had to come up with some quote to put underneath your picture. So you would either put a quote from a famous writer or something from the Bible or something from Buddy the Elf or something like that that he would say. Now, they make you write about what your plans are after high school. It is quite revealing. For most in the yearbook, it says something like, going to the University of Tennessee to study mechanical engineering where I hope to design automobiles or going to Lee University to study nursing. One guy wrote, I plan to join the Navy. One wrote, I plan to go to college. That's a good plan. You might want to put some details on that plan, put some action steps, apply, things like that. One senior wrote, I try not to stress about the future too much. The present is scary enough. (laughs) A.K.A. I have no idea what I'm doing. One guy wrote, I plan to buy my mom that Mercedes she's always been talking about, a.k.a. I want to stay at home, so I'm getting some brownie points with my mom. One senior wrote, my future plans are to become famous. No details, no area of being famous, just I will be famous. My favorite is one girl wrote, all I know is I will be the mother of cats. That's probably the most accurate one out of all of them, honestly. You know, graduation is one of, those, it's one of those transition moments in life where you have to make decisions and plans and you have to think. It forces you 
to think about the future, about what's next. I'm finishing this chapter, what's the next chapter of my life? And the reality is that each one of us has plans for the future. Whether we've written them down, a one-year, five-year, ten-year plan, or we just have dreams, desires, things that we hope for in the future. Whether it's our careers and ambitions we have for our careers, or our families, dreams we have for our children, where we map out what they will be and what they will be like, or thinking about retirement, plans to travel, things we want to see. Our plans might be as simple as tomorrow I need to mow the grass and go grocery shopping for the week. But each one of us at times must think about the future. We have dreams, we have desires, we have plans. So how does God instruct us to think about those plans? What should our attitude be towards the future? What should these high school seniors write in their yearbook? How should you think about what you're going to do tomorrow and the next day and next year? Well, listen, James has wisdom for us. He has wisdom for how to think about this. And I think the main point of our text today is embracing God's will, not our plans, is how we live by faith. We all have plans, and embracing God's will, not our plans, is how we live by faith. And the first thing we see, point one from our text, is you don't know tomorrow. You don't no tomorrow. Look back at verse 13. James in verse 13 seems to be addressing primarily merchants, but I think it's applicable to all of us. He says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. It's very common in this time for merchants to travel to buy and sell goods, to set up shop in an area for a season where they will sell those goods. And James is addressing these merchants who are making these plans. And the first observation when you read that is there's nothing wrong with what they're doing. Merchants travel. Merchants go to various towns. They, They make a profit for their business. None of this is wrong, and it's not wrong to have a plan. Planning is good. But James says there is a way that planning can become evil. That's what he calls it in verse 16. So all the non-planners are poking the person next to you. See? See, it's evil to plan. That's not what James is saying. He's saying there is a way planning can become evil. How is this evil? They're not doing anything wrong. It's not sinful to make a profit, how is this evil? We all make goals, we save, we plan, we dream about the future. All those things can be very good. They can also become very evil when God is removed from the picture. The problem is not the planning, but planning in such a way where God has no place in the plans. The problem with the statement in verse 13 is it is godless. It is without God. James is going after this presumptuous self-sufficiency where our plans are not subject to God's sovereign will. So this is what he says 
in verse 14. Look down at verse 14. He says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You don't know. You plan, you dream, you you save, you budget, you scheme, but you don't know. You plan to go to this in this town and and set up shop and spend a year there and make this much money, but there are a thousand things that might happen between here and there, and you don't know what they are. God has wisely left us in the dark about future events. We know what we intend to do. We know what we hope will happen, but a thousand things might happen to prevent us from doing those plans. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells this parable about a man who was very prosperous. He, his land was producing tons of crops, so much so that his barns couldn't contain it all. He was surprised. He was amazed by this blessing. So he decides to tear down his barns and build bigger ones to contain all of his stuff. And this is what he says. The rich man says, soul You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. And God speaks to the man and says, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the thing you have prepared, who will they be? You do not know what tomorrow will bring. And even more sobering, is the rest of verse 14. Look down at verse 14 again. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. And then he asks this question, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. None of us, not one of us, is guaranteed that we will be alive tonight to lay our heads on our pillows. None of us are promised another day. He's talking about the brevity of life. You don't know tomorrow. You don't know. I was reading this text yesterday. I was preparing my message. I was in my office. I was on this verse, what is your life for you are a mist. And while I'm reading this verse, my phone is sitting here to the right. A little text pops up on my phone from my mom. And it says, your Aunt Linda has passed away. I'm in the middle of reading this verse, and that, that pops up, and I call my mom, I talk to her, I say, I'm so sorry, I grieve with her. It's just amazing. Just think about it, just like that. We're, just like yesterday, I remember being at Aunt Linda's house and playing with my cousins and her cooking these meals for us. And like that, it's gone. Our life is but a mist that vanishes. Now, some people respond to that by saying, life is short. We should go out and experience as much as possible, right? Soak it up while there is still time. On the other end of the spectrum, some respond to this as an excuse to do nothing. They say, well, well, what's the point? It all disappears like that. They become fatalistic. Listen, James is giving us this reality as a reason to be humble before God. To see each day as a gift from God. To be thankful, humble. Every breath we have is because God is having mercy on us. He has sustained us for another breath. 
James wants us to be humble. You don't know tomorrow. You're making these plans. You don't know. Planning is not wrong, but arrogant self-confidence and self-sufficiency are. James is not trying to stop our planning, only a self-sufficient planning that looks at the weak and the future as if it is ours and not God's. We look at our planning and we say, if I get another day, Lord, it is yours. May it be for your glory. This is one of my biggest battles with my flesh is self-sufficiency. Every day I battle self-sufficiency, and this text is a gift to self-sufficient people like me. I love to-do lists. I love feeling productive. There's just something about writing it down on a list and just checking it off, crossing it out, and you look at the end of the day, and all these things have been accomplished, and it so easily becomes for me. Look at what I'm going to do. Look at what I plan to do. And at the end of the day, I can say, look at what I've accomplished. It's self-sufficiency. It's living as if I'm in control, as if I'm independent, as if I have all the power within myself to do what I want to do. I love, well, I don't love, I do love it, but it's convicting how Jerry Bridges calls self-sufficiency. He just calls it ungodliness. It's ungodly. It's convicting. It's going through our day, living our everyday lives with no thought of God, God's will, of our dependence on God. We may even begin our day reading our Bible for a few moments and praying to God, and then we go into the day's activities and basically live as though God doesn't exist. It's self-sufficiency, it's ungodliness, and it is evil. And what James is saying is it's a lie. You're being lied to. Your flesh is lying to you if you think like I do that I am self-sufficiency. To ignore God's sovereignty is to ignore reality. You don't know. You don't know. So how do we fight against the lie of self-sufficiency. Well, James says we recognize we're ignorant. We don't know tomorrow. We recognize we are frail. We are a mist that vanishes. And we recognize we are completely dependent on God. And what James wants to do is James wants to show us a better way the way of active faith in God every day. The wise person, the humble person, the godly person, the dependent person recognizes their lives are not their own and they are to be lived for the glory of God by the strength God provides. There is a better way than the way of self-sufficiency. And the way James wants us to go is the way of faith. He wants us to take our plans, our to-do list, our desires, our dreams, all these things, and he wants us to submit them to God's will. So point number two, submit your plans to God. You don't know tomorrow, submit your plans to God. In verse 15, James wants to show us what living faith looks like. Okay, remember James is after. What James is after is a vibrant, active 
living faith. He wants us to be doers of the words. He wants the faith we have in God to transform how we live everyday lives. And so my tendency, our tendency can be to be self-sufficient every day. James wants to apply faith. What does it mean to have faith in God? Let's have a vibrant faith in how we depend on God. And so he says, do this. Look at verse 15. Instead of what verse 13 said, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. We will live and do this or that if the Lord wills. And James doesn't want us to just say it, okay? It's not some magical incantation we say over our plans, if the Lord wills. Now all my plans are going to come to fruition. It's not a formula. If I say it, it's not that if I say this, well, I'm humble and I'm depending on God if I just use these words. He wants us to mean it from the heart. He wants it to be our heart's disposition. It's like how Jesus taught us to pray. Remember, your kingdom come, your will be done. We are submitting ourselves to God and his sovereignty and his will. It's not just words we say, it's the reality of who we are. We believe God is the only sovereign one. We believe God is the only independent one. Everything else in all of creation, including us, is dependent on God. That's what we're saying. It's your will. I'm dependent on you. Children sometimes ask, who made God? You ever had a kid ask you that question? I'm sure it's happening in children's ministry this morning. Who made God? Because they look around and we teach them from when they're little that, that everything is made. They look around and everything they see, including themselves, is made. And so they say, well, who made God? Well, we keep telling them, God made this, God made that. That's our answer. It's our get-out-of-jail-free card for every question, right, as a parent. Well, how did that come from? Well, God made that, you know? And they say, well, who made God? And the reality is God never needed to be made because he was always there. He's self-existent. He's totally different from everything else in creation. And he alone knows what tomorrow holds. Not only does he know it, but he is sovereign over it. It's under his control, which should, one, make us humble, and two, it should make us hopeful. Because even our best plans cannot be as good as what God plans. And he's in control, not us. So we should submit our plans to God because we are completely dependent on him, whether we recognize it or not, it's true. Several weeks ago, I was on a, a mission trip with our youth and parents to Mexico. And one of the projects was to build this forge, I guess you call it, which we were going to use to melt aluminum, which they wanted to use to kill these anthills. So they have anthills all over the ranch, the orphanage. They wanted to kill these ants. So we were going to build this forge. So Chuck Hayden and his son Matthew worked on it for several days together. I think we have a picture of them working on it together. They had to use whatever was sitting around the ranch to make this forge. And so they found this steel drum and they cut it off, they cut it in half, and they had some bricks they had to form. They put sand on the outside of it. And Dean, who, who runs the ranch, had this crucible 
And the goal was to put the crucible in the middle, to have charcoal around it, which was surrounded by brick, which was surrounded by sand. And the goal was this thing had to get up to 1,200 degrees to melt the aluminum. So they're building this thing. It was pretty amazing to see what they built. They attached this pipe into the side. You can see there that pipe. They had a hair dryer hooked up to the end of that pipe, so it blew air on the charcoal, heated it up. It's pretty interesting, pretty fascinating. Well, we finally get ready to test the, this thing out at the end of the week. And, you know, we have to get the fire going. The fire gets going. It's getting hot. The hair dryer's blowing. These sparks are flying up. It's getting hotter and hotter. It's melting the metal outside. It's burning the paint off of this forge. And we finally get to a point where I start asking the question, hey, who's going to get that out of this fiery, you know, furnace that's burning at 1,200 degrees? And I see that they've taken the scrap metal and they've made it in kind of like these giant chopsticks that are going to reach down, lift this forge, and pour this aluminum onto the anthill, which I thought, we all start thinking, this is a really bad idea. Like, this is not safe. This is, this is not going to work. And so I go to Chuck Hayden and I asked Chuck, hey, are you going to lift that crucible out of there? And Chuck goes, I'm the engineer, not the operator. I don't, you know, I thought that was a great response. He goes, I just build this stuff. I don't use it. And so we're all watching like, this thing is really hot. And you open it and you just have to stand back. It is so hot. Someone's going to stand over this thing and lift this with this really bad device they've created, in our opinion. We're thinking this is not good. And Chuck made it clear, I didn't make that device. I just built that thing over there. And so Dean, who runs the ranch, decides he's going to be the one to lift this thing out. And so he begins to gear up. He has got on these welding gloves. He has on, I think we have a picture of these chemistry goggles. I don't know what those are supposed to do, you know. He has on these snake boots. And we're looking at them, and all of us are pretty sure None of those items are going to protect you from 1,200-degree melted aluminum. And we, he's getting ready. He's getting these giant chopsticks ready. He's planning out his way of escape if something goes wrong. We're all getting out our cameras and our phones to see the train wreck that's about to happen. You know, we're getting excited. And he gets over it, and he's got these giant metal chopsticks, and he, lifts the, he starts to lift the lid, and just it's 1,200-something degrees in there, and he closes the lid. And he steps back off the platform and he looks around at all of us with our phones out. And he says, let's pause and let's pray and ask for God's help. <laughs> now, you may be thinking, you didn't pray about this yet? <laughs> Listen, I already told you I'm self-sufficient, okay? I hadn't thought of that yet. But Dean, I think what happened is Dean looked into that fiery furnace with those giant chopsticks and he thought, what is your life? You are a mist that vanishes. And he looked at it, and I think what he thought is, you know what? I'm pretty desperate right now for God. I think we need some help. Let's pause, and let's ask for God's help, and let's submit these plans to God. I wasn't sure he was going to do it after we prayed, honestly. I thought he's going to pray and go, you know what? The Lord said no. Just shut the fire down. <laughs> let's live with the ants. They'll be just fine. You know, our lives are so fragile. It's like every day we are playing with fire. The only reason we make it through a day is because if God wills and he absolutely sustains our life every second of the day, we just don't recognize it. 
We think, this is my life, and I've got this. I can do this. We make our plans. We're self-sufficient. And I think Dean in that moment realized, this is not good. I need help. Every one of us, every day, we need to live as if we're staring into the fire. And if we don't, if we're not sustained by God, we're not going to make it till the end of the day. Listen, I know you were going to wonder this at the end. So side note, it did work, and we actually did kill all the ants. So that's how hot the thing got right there. The whole thing was glowing. That's what he was playing with right there. Listen, what happens when we don't recognize, when we don't live like this, when we don't recognize our dependency on God, and we live independent of God, and we don't submit our plans to God, then we boast in our accomplishments. You see that? There's a pattern here. We don't recognize our dependency on God, and so we live independent of God. We don't submit our plans to God, and then we boast in ourselves, like we did this ourselves. That's what's wrong with verse 13. That's what James is getting after in our lives. If they actually accomplish their plans, if they go to this town and they set up their shop and they spend a year and they make a profit, then they come home and they boast as if they did what they said they were going to do. And this is why he says, look at verse 16. As it is, if this happens, verse 13, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. This kind of boasting is arrogant and evil. It's a lie. We deceive ourselves. It's the boast of the self-sufficient person. When we don't submit our plans to God and recognize His sovereignty and His will, then we boast in ourselves. And that is evil. I was thinking about boasting like this, and I couldn't help but remember Nebuchadnezzar. Remember the story from Daniel 4 in our Old Testaments where he is the king of Babylon at its peak and he's on the roof of his palace one morning and he begins to look around his kingdom. He lived in a beautiful ancient city with the famous hanging gardens below him, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it says the king Nebuchadnezzar was on his rooftop and he began to look around and this is what he said. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? This was arrogant and evil boasting. And if you remember the story, God swiftly humbles Nebuchadnezzar. He drives him out of the kingdom to eat grass like an ox and his hair grows crazy and his nails grow long. He is humbled before the power of God. God takes away his senses and God humbles his arrogance. Now, I doubt any of us wake up in the morning and look across our freshly mowed lawns and say, is not this yard amazing mowed by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty? Probably not what you're doing every morning. But in our hearts and in our minds, though we not, might not be as bold as Nebuchadnezzar to boast like he does, in our hearts we boast. We brag. 
We, we are satisfied with ourselves and our accomplishments. So instead of thanking God and giving Him the glory to His name, we boast in our arrogance. When we submit our plans to God, we trust in His sovereign will. When we're dependent on Him and we see what our life is, when we see His sovereign will, we see how desperate we are, anything good that comes from us, God must get the glory. When we're living like he tells us to, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. You don't know what's going to happen. All these things, God is sovereign when we recognize that. When we live recognizing we're playing with fire and God sustains us, then God gets all the glory. See, this kind of boasting in verse 13 is evil, but Scripture does give us things we can boast in. Scripture gives us things that we can boast in. Jeremiah 9, verse 23 through 24. It says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. We can boast in God, in His love, His justice, His righteousness. 2 Corinthians tells us that we can boast in our weaknesses, that the power of Christ might rest upon us. We can boast in how great God is. We can boast in how weak we are. And I love Galatians 6.14. It says, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't boast in what you've done. Boast in what God has done. God has displayed His love and justice and righteousness by sending His only Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to save sinners like us. He did this by sacrificing Himself, by being crucified, hung on a cross, bearing our sins on that tree and the punishment that our sins deserved from God. We deserved God's wrath. That's the reality of our lives. But Christ took our place. And after He died, He was buried. And after three days, He rose again. And He is alive today. And that is something to boast about. That's something to shout about, to tell others about. Don't boast in ourselves. It's arrogant and evil and self-sufficient. Boast in God. All we added to what God has done is our sin that Jesus bore upon that tree. And He took our place and He clothes us in His righteousness. We're forgiven of our sins. We know our God who created us and we can boast in Him. We can boast in His goodness. We can boast in His grace. We can boast in His might. We can boast in His power. We can boast He sustained us for another day, for another breath. We can boast in all these things about God. Scripture gives us all these things to boast in. But to boast in ourselves, that's evil. And sadly, that is so often the boast of the self-sufficient person. Boast in God. Boast in His grace. And finally, point three, so you don't know tomorrow, submit your plans to God. And point three, embrace God's interruptions. Okay, embrace God's interruptions in your plans. Upon first reading, when I read this text, it can be tricky to figure out 
how verse 17 fits into this section. Look at verse 17. Look down to verse 17 with me again. So he, he walks through this boasting. It's evil. And then he says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Upon first reading, you may think, well, that means that we have to put, if the Lord wills, before all of our plans. And if we don't do it, it's sinful. But put into the context of our passage, embracing God's will and not our plans is how we live by faith. I think verse 17 teaches us that there will be moments when we have to choose. There will be moments when we will have our plans, what we desire, what we've thought about, what we have put in front of ourselves, and there's going to be moments where God interrupts our plans with something good, where we know the right thing to do. Will I continue in my plan, or will I embrace what God is putting in front of me? And verse 17 says, for him, if we, don't, if we fail to do the right thing, for him, it is sin. Sin is not only doing what God forbids us to do, it's failing to do the good God calls us to, which is often what happens when we stick to our plans instead of God's. So often we think of sin as not doing bad things, right? God says, do not lie, so we don't lie. God says, don't covet, so we don't covet. That's part of it. But the other part is what James is concerned about, this living faith. And what he's concerned about is disregarding what God has said we should do. So God says, this is the good I've called you to, and instead we do what we want to do. There are all these good works God has called us to, good works that God has prepared for us to walk in, and we don't even know they're coming. They're not in our plans. We plan our, out our week, and we may think of others and serve others, but things are going to come up in your week which you have not planned, which are good works God has called you to. There will be interruptions to your week. There will be opportunities presented to you to care for others, to stop what you are doing, to minister God's grace to them. There will be moments and opportunities to set aside your plans to do what you know is right to care for this person could be with a friend, a co-worker, a family member, a waiter, a waitress, a clerk, a customer, someone from your community group, a stranger in line at the grocery store. It might be a prayer for that person. It might be a listening ear, an invitation to church, pulling up an extra chair to the dinner table that night, a scripture to encourage them, a phone call to let them know you are praying for them. It might be paying for their groceries, things that we cannot plan, we don't know, this is going to happen to them and they're weak. And it's going to be an opportunity presented to us. You will have a plan and God will give you this opportunity. And when we embrace God's will, we embrace God's interruptions. I love this story. This is from Randy Alcorn, which I find this hilarious about embracing God's interruptions. He says this, he says, late one rainy night, my wife and I were leaving a movie theater when Nancy noticed an older man in the parking lot leaning on a walker, struggling. I helped him get into his car. Since he was so exhausted, I asked if I could drive him home. 
He declined, but I said we'd follow him home, which is kind of creepy, but he does it anyway, in case he needed help. As he pulled out, driving erratically, we prayed he wouldn't find the street. Our prayers were answered when he got trapped in a fast food drive through line. I opened his door, asked him to move to the passenger seat so I could drive him home while Nancy followed. As I pulled out, two men jumped in front of the car, waving their arms and a cell phone. One shouted, my wife's having our baby and I have to get home. Can you drive us? Well, I said, this isn't my car and I don't know this man sitting next to me. <laughs> Sounds pretty lame, don't you think? So I asked Nancy to drive the older man's car and follow me while I took those guys home wherever that was. After dropping them off, I hopped back in with George, by now I knew his name, to take him home wherever that was, and Nancy followed us. When we reached his place, I helped him to his room. Now what's amazing with this story is Randy Alcorn goes on to talk about how he took George back into his house, and he gave him a book in light of eternity, the book he wrote. be nice to give people books you wrote, you know. He gave him his book, and then he prayed and said, you know, I hope God, hope he reads this book and God ministers to him. Finds out that his assistant has a sudden medical emergency a few weeks later, goes to the doctor with that book in hand in light of eternity. The doctor says, I had a patient who just had that book who was saying he'd love to talk to the author, Randy Elkhorn's assistant gives the doctor the number who gives it to, you guessed it, George, who was the patient. And George called Randy Elkhorn, spent two hours together, and at the end of their conversation, he prayed, confessed his sin, and accepted Christ's gift of eternal life. Now, I wish I had a story like that to use as an illustration, but I just don't. But what I love about that is embracing God's will. Just that at the end of that, watching this man struggle to get into his car leads on this path of sharing the gospel with him and him receiving Christ and eternal life. Embrace God's interruptions. The sad thing is the self-sufficient person, the self-confident person will likely miss these opportunities. We'll have our plan. We'll be doing it in our own strength. And when God presents these opportunities, it won't be part of the plan and we'll miss them. And James wants us to have this living, active, vibrant faith. He wants us to live out our faith in front of others and to come into each day aware. I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. I have my plan. I have my thoughts. I have my desires. But I don't know. If God sustains me, if I live another day, if I have another breath, I'm going to walk into that day holding my plans up and submitting them to God. And if God presents opportunities to me that aren't a part of my plan, I want to embrace God's interruptions. James is all about this action, this living faith, being a doer of the Word. But all of our doing is humbly dependent on the sovereign God of the universe. James gives us a radically different way to live in this world. It's radically different. Instead of living like we are going to be here forever, filling our barns with more and planning our futures to serve ourselves, James envisions a life humbly submitted to God, realizing life is short, eternity is long, and there's a lot of good to be done for others. So dependent on God, 
We live our lives to love and serve others, to do good, to be generous with our money and our time. And if God wills, we will accomplish much for His glory. It's a radically different life. It's a life of faith. It's a call to embracing God's will, not our plans, and to live by faith. Let's pray. Father, we humbly submit ourselves to Your will. I thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the self-sufficient person like me. How wise Your Word is. It humbles us before Your sovereignty. It humbles us before Your power and Your grace. And it reminds us You are good. And so we can trust You, God. We can trust you with tomorrow. We can trust you with today. We can trust you with the future. We can trust you with our children. We can trust you with our jobs. We can trust you with our lives because you are a faithful God. How firm a foundation we have in our God because you have shown your faithfulness to us by sending us the Savior. And so we entrust ourselves to you and we Say and we sing, all glory be to you, God. May you receive all the glory. If anything good comes from us in our lives, may you receive the glory, for it is by your grace any good comes, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. You've been listening to a message given by Mike Pluniak during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.